Welcome, 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 everyone, to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. Once again, it's going to be Tech Cars Robots. And in fact, we could also say it's Tech Cars Agricultures or maybe even Tech Cars Y Combinator. In fact, we have a little bit of a double header for you today, and the reason for that is Y Combinator. Y Combinator, as you probably know, is the best-known pure entrepreneur incubator in Silicon Valley. About twice a year, they do a major event where they introduce some of their graduates to a group of investors. In late March, they had an event which is called the Y Combinator Winter Demo Day, and about 100 companies presented for a very brief two minutes each. A couple of us from GTK were present as investors, and it was so inspirational, really, to be around so much energy, we decided to give a couple of the presenters uh, the mic, so to speak. Those couple, of course, fit into the Tech Cars Machines category, and we invited them for an episode of our podcast, and later on, we'll feature them in some of our publications. The double header is as follows. One episode will be about Beanstalk, an indoor farming uh, startup, which will get released simultaneously with this episode, which is going to be about Bear Flag Robotics. What Bearflag does is automate tractors, not the massive green, you know, typically John Deere tractors that you see going back and forth across a golden field of wheat, typically to a setting sun uh, or some other suitably dramatic lighting backdrop. In the case of Bearflag, we're talking about smaller tractors for orchards where they're not really used for harvesting, but rather for mowing and spraying as the, as the tractor goes up and down between the orchard rows. Bearflag is trying to automate this process, meaning that the tractor can go up and down and do its work without a driver. You know, it's particularly fun to talk about agriculture because that field is pretty much where human mechanization really um, began, more or less, but certainly had some of its most spectacular results. Here's this episode's fun fact for you. About 170 years ago in 1850, 83% of the U.S. population worked in agriculture and basically barely fed itself. The number of people involved in agriculture is probably about 1% today. And that 1% of the population in the U.S. feeds a number of people that's a multiple of the American population. So spectacular advancements. In this episode, we're going to be talking to the co-founders, two incredibly sharp and very brilliant people, very nice, very intense at the same time, Egino Cafiero and Aubrey Donnellan. And these two are from Carnegie Mellon, and that makes Bear Flag somewhat of a prototypical robotics company uh, in the sense that much of their staff does come from Carnegie Mellon or CMU. And CMU is a celebrated university when it comes to the field of robotics. You're going to hear a few terms that I'm going to explain for you here. First, the red team. The red team is a famous student-led team at CMU, which has a lot of uh, external collaboration as well, that typically enters into a race called the U.S. Department of Defense's Grand Challenge. The Grand Challenge is the pretty much the major annual event for autonomous prototypes, and the red team at CMU, at Carnegie Mellon, typically does pretty well. Another term you'll hear is RTKGPS. RTK stands for Real-Time Kinematic. GPS, of course, as you know, stands for Global Positioning System. And RTK-GPS is really just a more accurate version of a GPS system, which is the same thing that is in your car and your phone. And RTK-GPS works by adding some equipment locally. Sometimes you can see this equipment as um, roughly a frisbee-sized white flying saucer shape sitting on a tripod at the edge of a field. If you see that, you know they're using an RTK GPS system to enhance the signals coming from the satellite and allow whatever device is communicating with that tripod to achieve a lot more accuracy in its movements. 
you'll also hear the phrase sensor fusion. All that really means is that rather than relying on a single type of sensor, let's say a camera or a LiDAR or a radar for its navigation, the system basically combines the inputs from a variety of sensors and judges uh, which ones it should rely on the most. Now, without further ado, let's head to Bear Flag Robotics and the co-founding team. Tech. Cars. Machines. Subscribe here or at techcarsmachines.com and gtkpartners.com. Great. We're here today with Bear Flag Robotics. Why don't you two go ahead and introduce yourselves in whatever order you like so people get used to what your voice sounds like, and then people will hear less and less of me and more and more of you. Thank you very much. I'm Egino, a founder of Bear Flag Robotics, and uh, I'm here with Aubrey. Hey, I'm Aubrey, also founder. Thanks for having us here. It's my pleasure. Don't be shy. Give us your last names, too. <laughs> of course. I'm mean, Egino Cafiero. Um, Aubrey yeah. Donnellan. Great. And, uh, <laughs> and we uh, first heard about Bear Flag through one of our good uh, venture investing uh, colleagues who, uh, who mentioned that they had a robotics investment. As some of our listeners know, we have an affiliate that's a major uh, landowner in Central California, lots of orchards, and therefore Bear Flag came up as potentially another one of the technologies that we've brought to and introduced to our farms, uh, starting with drones, some of you may recall. We actually saw them and met them again at Y Combinator, the winter demo event. That was a couple weeks ago. Maybe it would be fun for our listeners for you to basically give us the Y Combinator pitch. It's down to, it used to be six minutes. I don't know if you know that, but it's down to down to two minutes. So that's a perfect way of starting. So I'm Aubrey Donnellan, my co-founder, Egino Cafiero. Uh, we're Bear Flag Robotics, and we are building autonomous tractors. So contrary to popular belief, no equipment OEM has released a fully autonomous tractor that's available to the market today. And that's why we're here. We're planning to be the first ones to do it. A little bit of background in the U.S., machine operating labor on farms accounts for a whopping 28% of growers' operating costs. These laborers, they're sitting on tractors all day long, driving the same exact routes every single season, day in and day out. This type of labor is, is really tough. Obviously, you're out in inclement conditions. It's pretty monotonous. And so with that, being able to replace that labor with our autonomous tractors, growers can obviously save a lot of money, but also increase the job satisfaction of people that they have working on their farms. So on top of an obvious labor savings, when you introduce autonomy, we, we also come in with these other efficiencies that you can gain by using the sensors that we're using. For instance, we can reduce the inputs that are used on their crops like herbicides and pesticides, fungicides um, by up to 20% using our precision application software and sensors on there. And in addition, we're really excited to, to implement some data analytics to start monitoring crop yields over time, being able to make recommendations for application and treatment throughout the season to help them increase their yields. And that's just, that's upside beyond the labor. So looking at, and I said this during the YC pitch, sorry, I'm not pitching really anymore. <laughs> um, but what does that look like for our customers? For our first one, they, they're north of Sacramento and they own a 2000 acre walnut orchard. If we implemented between three and four tractors on their farm, they could save, they could save 10% in profit every single year, increase their profit 10% every year. So that's obviously a really big game changer. And yeah, I mean, we'll skip over the market since we decided that we're not going to talk about market. But basically, the progress of our team has been outstanding over the last six months. We've developed, as you saw back in the garage, we have two fully autonomous vehicles, a side-by-side -side and a tractor. We're out in the field every week collecting hours. 
um, and miles on these vehicles. Um, and we've just done it in the last six months. So the progress has been amazing. Um, yeah. So in summary, the YC template, we're bare flag robotics. We're building autonomous tractors that are on real farms in California. We save our customers on labor and increase their yields. And our vision is to automate the world's farms. Great. Thank you for giving us that Y Combinator pitch. Now the world knows. This is a great idea. Why is today the right time to implement the idea? Is it that nobody else had come up with the idea or is it that the technology is ready? When I think about that, I see two main drivers for, for why now. Um, the first is certainly market driven. The cost of labor is coming up substantially. So when we go and talk to growers, we hear continually the, the economics that their farms are built on just don't work with this rising cost of labor. And then furthermore, and, um, you know, as we discussed about earlier, as the price of these commodities come down, as foreign markets come on come online, um, the price of these commodities come down and these farmers are just getting squeezed in the middle. They're, they're facing an existential threat. Um, and unless they can either lower their operational expense or increase their yields, um, they have a grim future. And Bearflex helping them with both of those. The second part of, of why now um, is that technology has just made massive strides. As, as Aubrey and I were um, reflecting earlier as well, um, when we were at Carnegie Mellon 10, 15 years ago, Red Team was just starting to experiment with LiDAR, and those LiDARs would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. The perception system that we have on the tractor right now is many orders of magnitudes less expensive. And then on top of it, the research around all these areas, um, the kinds of people we're talking to, the people on our team have been researching this technology in universities for the last decade, and now it's finally getting ready to hit the market. So now is this perfect intersection of both demand and technological ability that allow us to produce something really cool today. Great. So that's the market and technology side of it. Sounds like you two met at Carnegie Mellon. Is that right? What, what brought you together recently? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a long story. <laughs> yeah. So Aubrey and I met at Carnegie Mellon in 2003. I was an electrical and computer engineer. Um, Aubrey was a mechanical. Dave, another member of our team, um, was also an engineer there. And one of our advisors as well um, was also an engineer there too. So it's a little bit of a Carnegie Mellon team. Um, but I've spent my career in software, but also on the side, I, I love building things. I've built when I was in Southern California, built race trucks to go mm-hmm. race, in, race in the desert. And then back in Northern California, built race cars and have a machine shop in the garage. And so this combination of a passion for software and also fabrication has really led me to industrial automation. It's, it's something that I'm really passionate about. And um, I'm really pleased that all of a sudden this demand and this need from customers is something that we can address with the skill sets that we have. When, you, when we talk about a farm or an orchard, Describe to them what that looks like. How long are the rows? What spacing do they have? How tall are the trees typically? What's growing on those trees? So obviously it's across the board. And we're actually, we're testing in tree nut orchards today. We hope to be in citrus and fruit orchards soon this year. We're also in row crops as well. So obviously that's a wide range. You know, right now our first customer, walnuts, they have 1,800 acres to be exact. I believe it takes us, well, in miles, what, 15 miles to, to do just a small portion of one of their plots. Um, you're going pretty slow in these tractors when you talk about, you know, when you're spraying and mowing and these, these operational tasks that they do on the orchards every single month during growing season. It'll take them an entire week team of people to do one of these operations. What size of tractor are we talking about here? It really depends, right? We're early stage. We can technically go on any size right now with, the, with our For an orchard, though, right? What's but for an orchard, right. you would only see typically between 50 and 100 horsepower. 
tractors or okay. narrow body tractor that's built for, for orchards and vineyards. So pretty much what we saw back there, like a big SUV, maybe really a little taller and you know, a couple of feet wider in the back. That's a pretty that's pretty much what you're focused on right now. There's it's an operational constraint of how these orchards are, are grown. Clearly the trees themselves need distance between each other in order to grow in a more healthy way. The shape and the size of the, the tractors that they drive between these rows is then dictated by the size of those trees. So any bit much larger would be not conducive to driving down these rows and any smaller would not be effective. And so it's a natural form factor based on the size of these trees. Yeah. Super. So now that we know what the tractor looks like. Start doing the surgery. What are the mechanical interventions you make? What pieces do you add and what do those pieces do? Absolutely. So the first task we have when we think about how to automate a tractor is what we call perception. We use cameras and LIDAR. LIDAR is laser radar. So Mm -hmm. now we can get a really detailed description of the world around us. Um, As we drive around, we can then process that image and know both where to go and where not to go. So we use these cameras and this LIDAR. Um, as well as things like IMUs, which measure um, the position of the tractor in space. It tells if the tractor is rotating or pivoting or its heading is changing. Sort of like the stuff you'd have in an aircraft, pitch, roll, yaw. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And then we also use GPS as well. And I'll note that one of the tricky parts about these orchards, um, one of the environmental challenges, is that the canopy of the trees gets so dense that it actually occludes the GPS signals needed um, for Precision Ag Today. So when you think about what Precision Ag Today does, it uses what's called RTK GPS. And this is how farmers can maintain a straight line across the field when they have a clear view of the sky. That's like your wheat field example. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Big big sky, Montana type of stuff, right? Precisely. Yep. In orchards with these dense canopies of, of branches and leaves over every row, that technology just doesn't work. Um, and so we've used these sensors um, in our algorithms to be able to drive in what's known as GPS-denied environments. And so a lot of our capabilities and a lot of our research have been around being able to navigate these GPS-denied environments. We then use a computer to process all this information coming in, and then we use actuators. So we are able to control the clutch, the brake, the steering wheel, the gas, and then implement control as well. On these tractors, there's three primary ways you control the implements, um, and we're able to manipulate all of those as needed as well. How close to reality is we haven't, this? We haven't actually tested the, the full capabilities, frankly. Usually we test corner cases, areas where it's bound to um, not work properly, and we concentrate on that. The other day we went out and we ran it for five hours and logged 15 miles, um, only stopping to switch drivers. We still keep a driver in it for now in case something does go awry. It ran, like I said, for five hours, 15 miles. with no reason we would have needed to stop it otherwise. Interesting. So the uh, auto companies are required to report interventions to the state. The analogy that here is that you're basically saying during that time frame, there were no interventions. Correct. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. And how much of that is a function of you having trained the tractor on that specific route versus how much the tractor is able to infer its new environment automatically? And what is the trade-off there? Maybe... For this type Both of- ways are really interesting. When we first started last fall, we actually developed algorithms so that you could park the tractor at the start of any random row, and it would use its own perception to then be able to navigate the entire plot. Um, it would go down the rows, it would see where trees are missing, it would see where trees are overgrown or maybe um, twisted in a weird shape, detect what we call inlier and outlier trees, trees that maybe not supposed to be there, um, and then detect the end of the row navigate the U-turn, identify the proper way to re-enter the row, 
and come back. And technically speaking, it was a major accomplishment to be able to watch the tractor drive up and down these roads without being trained. More recently, we've moved to a model, maybe a more user-friendly model, where the farmer himself will drive the tractor up and down the rows and teach the tractor what to do. Um, and then we're able to replay that back. We have both ways. Right now, we're focusing, as we go to market, we're focusing more on this teach and replay. But we have both capabilities, which is really cool. Okay, that's great. So, Aubrey, how much of a mechanical engineering challenge is this versus an electronics uh, challenge? We're lucky on a couple different fronts there and that we're, we're on an already manufactured machine that's been stress tested. We're on a case, so they make great tractors and we get to benefit from that and their test cycles. Frankly, based on the electronics and the software algorithms that our team has built, it hasn't been a huge mechanical engineering problem um, or challenge. Um, we, we have a couple areas and controls that we do have mechanical solutions to, but they're minor compared to the complexity and problem solving that we've had to do on a sensor fusion, like guidance and navigation front. What has been both the surprising and the expected challenge in terms of this integration? Where has it required the most work and the, uh, and the adaptation to this particular solution? As we think through it, there's the challenge is the breadth of the problem in this new space. A lot of solutions exist you know, for your Tesla to drive down the road and sense the rows and sense the lanes. There hasn't been a lot of research, a lot of work done in these unstructured off-highway environments. I see. They have an expectation that their path is marked yeah. with a white line or a yellow line, and you got nothing. Yeah. Or it's been modeled extensively already, whereas either we're building those models either on the fly or re, um, redriving these paths for models that we've already made. And there's a lot of environmental variability there. Things like twigs stick out, and naturally we need to drive through twigs, but not through other obstacles that could damage that obstacle or the, or the vehicle itself. And distinguishing between those sorts of things has been a challenge. Let me actually maybe break that up a little bit, because you've done a lot of work around perceiving the environment. Why take that approach when a little bit of infrastructure, for example, might allow you to have a perfect understanding of where you are in that environment. There's a couple points on this. Yeah. To your point, we've thought through this a lot. And what small infrastructural changes can we make or additions to mm-hmm. the environment can we make, make us more precise without our very fancy sensor fusion approach, you know, from putting reflective tape on the trees to having beacons mm-hmm. um, in the plot. And all those are great. And if you if you look at collegiate teams that are doing robotics and they, they capitalize on, on those approaches. The problem is, is that for us to do it at scale and to provide the user experience that we want to provide, we know we have to be better than that and not have this huge upfront infrastructure change for people to adopt us. And so, yeah, we shot for better than that. It's also a rugged environment. At the very base level, trees are living things. They grow and change. And so even so much as figuring out where we are, doing um, you know, traditional methodologies. Like we don't have a lot of hard services like buildings to localize on, so we've had to play other tricks. Even things like branches um, falling down during a storm, we can't, it's impractical to need to stop for every obstacle in the way. Certainly there's obstacles we need to drive over as a human would. And identifying the difference and classifying those is a big part of um, where we're developing capability. One of the things that people do generally for autonomy is they send a vehicle through with a LIDAR and basically map the environment to a high resolution. And what they're really doing is essentially three-dimensional edge detection. And so a building will have a particular profile. Problem is when it snows, for example, that profile actually changes enough where what's in your memory isn't suddenly matching closely enough what's actually in the, in the live environment. And so 
that's why one of the reasons that that you have uh, things like noise and until recently rain would cause a problem for these environments. So what you're saying is at least those buildings are don't really change very often. And at least you know when it snowed. But in a living environment, that contour is constantly changing. And so in that sense, I guess you're constantly remapping. From a never it, Was that, did I get that that's right? Entire, that's exactly okay, right. All right. Um, yeah, we don't have to remap every single day. Like, you know, there, there is a level of static. If you have a tree at the beginning of the season for years, that tree will hopefully stay in the same place. So there, there are markers in these environments. But if you think about it, trees look very similar and very different at the same exact time. Mm-hmm. If you're using computer vision, yeah, they look kind of the same. They have a canopy and they have a stump and there's features that you can key off of, but they also aren't perfectly the same. And so that makes the processing of your point clouds and detection less definitive yeah. to actually localize in the environment based on those maps, if that makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. As you think about deploying these systems the question of safety always comes up. Absolutely. So we think about this a lot, of course. We do have the natural advantage that we're not in highly populated areas, mm-hmm. um, and we can make some rules about how you interact with these machines, but certainly like, we can't depend on those rules. Um, it just it makes the likelihood of unforeseen obstacle less, but it doesn't eliminate it, so we need to deal with it. So a lot of what we do is also introducing redundancies, um, both in hardware and software, to remove any single point of failure. Having a detection system is a completely different loop than our decision-making system, so that if one system fails, the other will catch it. Um, and so then using different sensors for, like, far-out detection, middle detection, you know, middle-range detection, and then even close detection, and different reactive things we can do um, when we sense either obstacles or even when we sense failures in the system. Um, so a whole different category of, of bad things happening is when sensors fail, I start sending bad data, then the ability of the system to recognize that and react accordingly. We do have this happy benefit, which, as you mentioned earlier, you know, an 18-wheeler going down the highway, perhaps slamming on the brakes is a more dangerous thing um, than trying to avoid the obstacle or do, do a third thing, maybe. For us, the, the happy side effect is that we can, we can afford false positives, and slamming on the brakes of a tractor um, typically doesn't have very negative side effects, and so we can afford to be more cautious. Um, the only negative side effect is the user experience, and so, of course, we work to lower the number of interrupts to an acceptable amount. We're never afraid to to just stop the tractor if we see something. Uh, what's been your experience so far on in the field? What's been kind of interesting, good surprises, less welcome surprises? <laughs> Lots of snakes in the Central Valley. Oh, is that right? Um, Are they poisonous? Uh, no. Don't oh, know. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's always one relief. We joke about that often, especially at our first customer. They, they do have a number of snakes, and so we joke about them showing up on the tractors and stuff. I'll, I'll take this. Yeah, one absolutely. One of the... One of the most fun experiences I had. We come out to the Central Valley and, you know, we're, we're a team from Silicon Valley and, and these farmers have been growing this land for generations and they know best how to farm it. So we do, we do face some skepticism as we come in. Growers are very knowledgeable and very polite, but they're also skeptical of new things. They haven't survived this long chasing trends. And so that was certainly an experience at our first customer. I, I came to talk to them once and explain how we were thinking about things and then um, came back a month or two later with our, our first demo prototype, the side-by-side that's in the garage right now. And there was a moment um, where the ranch supervisor, um, who's very polite, but once again, like skeptical of our technology, is sitting there next to me. And I put him in the driver's seat. We lined, we lined the side-by-side up at the start of the row. And, and he's in the, in the driver's seat on the left. I'm on the right. And he's sitting 
very rigid and he has his arms crossed. I won't do that because of the microphone. And he's, he's staring ahead and he's waiting to see what happens. And the side-by-side starts to drive down the road. And the first thing that happens is the accelerator pedal goes in because the actuator has pulled it in. And then the steering wheel starts making minute adjustments down the road. And you could see during the course of the drive down this road, the transformation in his body language. At first, you know, you started to see the smile curl on, the, on his lips and then um, his, his arms relaxed. And by the end of the road, by the end of the road, he was just selling it back to me. He's like, we could use it for this. We could use it for this. We could use it for that. Like, this is incredible. I can, I see how this will transform our operational ability. Um, and so moments like that are especially encouraging um, when we're able to show farmers how what we're working on can help. In some ways, does that worry you in terms of a competition? If it takes a few months to get to a prototype, does it worry you that it could allow easy entry for others as well? We would love to see more entrants in this in this space, and we we haven't seen many. The people who that we read about are, are doing this on the startup side, super impressed, and hope that they they move up. But you know, we we also don't know what's going on at the major OEMs. We don't know what they're in, investing in outside of their like M and A deals that we read about. So it's tough to tell. It's not easy though. To the six months that we've had PhD working on some of this sensor fusion technology, it's not a trivial problem. So I wouldn't fault anyone for not being able to come up to speed on it quickly. That's the point that Tesla has made for a long time as well. They always said that we would benefit if more people knew people with electric vehicles that they were happy with. Oh, entirely so. Just educating growers about the tools that are potentially even available to them to help them survive. Like this is a conversation we need to be having. Absolutely. And the other thing to add on, too, there's this big chasm between a prototype that works and something you can actually, Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we're tackling now. You know, frankly, while the videos of the tractor are great, like I said, putting in redundancies, having strong communication systems, having an interface where a a grower can tell the tractor specifically what he wants the tractor to do without being frustrated. These are the next level challenges that we're unlocking now. From what I've seen at other companies, their discovery is that the more advanced the technologies you're deploying, especially from a computational perspective, the more closely the more closely they need to be aware in detail of the workflow. Uh, the learnings matter a lot, and, the, and and therefore that's to some extent that's the advantage of being first and being ahead. We, yeah, we couldn't agree more. Yeah, we that. we spend so much time with growers on um, tractors as well. <laughs> yeah, um, coming up to speed on their operational constraints has been. You know, P1 for us, absolutely. We go to AgTech conferences all over the state. Um, we're a member of Western Growers and Salinas, which has been incredible for us too, but then also just going out and, and talking to growers in their field and understanding how they do work and how they think about it. Because it's not standard across all, all farms or even types of farms and understand what the commonalities are and how we can help the most people. Slight change of subject here. What did people think, your loved ones, family members, et cetera, when you decided to attempt this? What's their view now, a year after you guys have had prototypes, some financing success, nice uh, Y Combinator demo day? Just to be clear, we've, we've certainly come a long way and we're still alive, but we're far from successful. Like our vision is very massive. We don't, um, we sit here thinking constantly we're not moving quickly enough, um, just, to, just to be clear on that. Yeah, I think it's across the, across the range. There's sort of, on one hand, there's an inevitability of tractors will someday be automated. Um, and then you sort of dive down in the weeds about, okay, what does that look like? And sometimes people lose interest and sometimes they dig in. But yes, um, maybe more on a human side, startups are hard. Um, my wife is a saint. Um, she she tolerates the long hours. And the, I'm certainly not my finest when I walk in the door at the end of the day. And um, she still loves me. And I'm grateful for that. 
looking back at my parents, I come from a, a family of real estate salespeople. <laughs> Not even, I was the first engineer in my whole family, so they don't know half the stuff that I've been working on since, you know, I was 22. But again, they're like, oh, aren't, aren't those things automated already? <laughs> no, not yet. Right. So, you know, they, they, they were healthy, skeptical. But I think people have just rallied behind keeping these, these growers in business and giving them the same thing that Detroit had. You know, when you, when you can fundamentally change an industry with automation, mm-hmm. it really opens up a lot of doors. Yeah, people are behind it. What are the milestones? over the next several months, couple of years, well, however you tend to measure it? Um, customer, customer, customer. So we have a couple of pilots going on right now, but we wanted to bring on a few more um, by the end of this year, just expose across growers, orchard owners specifically in California, driving interrupts in the field. I know we talked about that before, but driving interrupts in the field down to just a minimal one to two throughout a whole day so that the customers aren't you know, going out there and rescuing the machines or telling the machines what to do in certain situations that don't know what to do. Yeah, making the user experience better. And just in and moving towards a state where we can have one supervisor supervising a fleet of autonomous tractors. We're not we're not trying to eliminate the human from the entire operational loop, but being able to see that savings of converting your your fleet to an autonomous fleet. That's our goal in the next 12, 18 months improving out our business model. How do you entice a farmer to sort of go along with what you're doing and let you, let you test them? Is there, do they get like an advanced, is it, is it like Kickstarter? They get an advanced copy of the tractor? What, what happens? Well, I've been extremely surprised and just super delighted that the people that we've spoken to growers across California, and I can't say this is the entire population, but surely every single person that we've been put in touch with loves what we're doing and has said, come to my farm, like you're welcome to test at our farm. I may not be outsourcing my operations to an early stage startup today, but I really like where you're going with this. And you guys are moving quickly and they're behind us. I mean, we've had offers from how many different farms to come demo, come pilot. Really everybody we talk to has has that open arm. I completely agree. And certainly we have that advantage being close to the Bay Area. But keeping in mind, Growers don't adapt technology for technology's sake. Um, and just because we have a cool gizmo, um, in fact, probably because we have a cool gizmo, they're going to get much more skeptical. Um, and so it's on us to show that we can help their bottom line and help them survive. Um, and they won't, they don't give us the benefit of the doubt. Um, and that's something we need to earn. But it gives, and it gives me security too, because I know that if we can deliver something that helps them in these material ways, we've, we've done something good. How do people get in touch with you? Yeah, we have a website, fairflagrobotics.com. Um, there's an email there, but also you can always reach out on LinkedIn. Did we forget to mention something? Um, if you know any engineers that are looking for a good challenge, um, tell them to reach out. Always talking to people that are motivated to help. Any connections to growers who might be interested in connecting with us? Great. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks for so taking much. the time. Bye-bye. Haven't we made you feel like really smart? Let us elevate you to very stable genius. Click subscribe or visit us at gtkpartners.com, where our subscribe buttons are much bigger.